This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Network original program. If you look to the scriptures, you will find it. If you look to sacred tradition, you will find it. You can even look to science and find it. What is it? Ample evidence of what Catholics have held to be true since the Last Supper, when our blessed Lord said, This is my body, and this is my blood. In their book, Behold, It Is I, Father George Eliot and Dr. Stacy Trosankos lay out all the evidence from a scriptural, traditional, and scientific standpoint. Joining me along the way is Father George Eliot. Father, welcome. Thank you, David. It's good to be on the show. Hey, it's good to have you here. Father, I, I got to tell the guests, I mean, this is really qu- quite a funny story. You and I kind of met on Facebook Live. You do a, a show on Facebook Live called Ask a Priest. It's very, very informative. It's, it's really short and you know, great, concise answers, and I love it. Um, but there was a guy who was kind of giving you a little bit of the business, and I just kind of told him, because I'm a knight, I'm in, in the Knights of Columbus, so we have to defend our priests, I told him to lighten up a little bit. So then your next thing was, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, you want to be on my podcast? You said, send me a message. I did. We, we started to talk the next day. I asked you, what do you want to talk about? And uh, you said how you wanted to talk about Jesus in the real presence of, of the Eucharist. And I said, that's really strange because I'm, you know, God must be sending me a message because I'm reading a book about that. Well, my guest today is Father George Elliott, and he is the author of that book that I was, I was reading and didn't know it. Father, it is good to have you. And this is really such a timely topic. This is a subject that Catholics should not even be having a discussion about. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just wrote an article for Tan Direction. If you haven't checked out uh, Tan Direction, it's a new kind of uh, blog website that they've got going mm-hmm. um, where they, they have their authors write different articles. And I did a little analysis of the church fathers where, you know, they would actually take the Eucharist and use it to prove things like the fact that God really did become man or that that there aren't two gods, but only one God. Um, and so, you know, it's it's incredible to think that we've gone, we've had this complete shift in the history of the church, really, in which, you know, the Eucharist was was the the proof that we used to prove the other things in the faith. Whereas now it's really kind of come come full circle and, and we have to really defend this this fundamental belief of the early Christians. Do you think that that change came from a, a bad catechesis or as a society, we began to believe the opposite teachings? Yeah, I think it, it came from a shift in the way that Christians live their life. You know, if you look at the early church, um, I, I get really into the early church. That was uh, my license and I studied patristics uh, after after being in the seminary. And so, you know, looking at the, the life of the early church, they really just went out and started doing the things that Jesus said to do. And and one of them was, do this in memory of me. And so really the central, you know, one of the central parts of the life of the early church was the Eucharist. Um, you know, it even says that in Acts 2.42, where, you know, the, the disciples, they dedicated themselves to, um, you know, the, the teaching the apostles, the prayers, the community life, and the breaking of the bread in reference to the Eucharist. You know, like that was one of the four things they dedicated themselves to. And so the Eucharist was just such a huge part of their life that if you were a Christian, you did this and you believed this. And I think for better or for worse, we've, we've kind of wandered from that. Um, I think some great theology has developed and things have happened that have been very good. But, but really, 
we, we've lost what, what we were called from the beginning to really be dedicated to, and that is the Eucharistic worship. Do you think that the Protestant Reformation had anything to do with modern-day beliefs in the Eucharist? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's a real um, destruction of the altar that happened in the Pro Protestant Reformation. Um, part of the yeah, kind of deconstruction of the faith really included anything that, that centered on the priest. And, of course, you know, the priest was... Uh, the man dedicated to the offering the sacrifice. And what was the sacrifice? The mass. Um, and so if you want to take the power away from the priest, you take the power away from the sacrifice. If you want to take the power away from the sacrifice, then you begin to not give it as much focus or even completely destroy it from religion. And really, that's what we see in a lot of um, Protestant faiths now that, you know, they're, they're, they don't even celebrate the communion in, in any form. Where did the reverence go? Yeah, well, that's a whole other problem. And, you know, in regard to uh, uh, Catholics, um, we've really lost a lot of that reverence. Um, and I think it's it's become a problem. Faith in the Eucharist has become a problem among Catholics largely because uh, of exactly that. You know, the, the reverence is not being shown. Um, and exactly what caused it or... Uh, you know how, where it, where that lack came from. It's it's hard to pin down, and I think there are a lot of cultural movements, there are cultural currents that that kind of came together to create some of that absolute nonsense that happened in the past with clown masses and all of this type of stuff. But um, yeah, it seems that you know the this emphasis in making the mass as accessible as possible to, to everybody and to, to essentially make mass feel like a living room, make a church feel like a living room um, has destroyed reverence as well in the mass. And when you destroy reverence, then you destroy the sense of the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And when the Eucharist is no longer God, then, well, it's, it's no longer the Eucharist. Right? I, I'm also looking at a book right now about the traditional Latin mass. Um, mm. It's also by Tan Books. I want to thank the, uh, my friends at Tan Books who sent me uh, a copy of your book, Father, and also the um, the new book by David Dashiell, Ever Ancient, Ever New. Uh, but yeah. it talks about the traditional Latin Mass, and I haven't gotten into it yet. I'm still finishing up your book. Oh. I just want to say reverence, is a, to me, is, is a matter of the heart. So it doesn't matter mm. if you're serving in the Novus Ordo or you, you're in a traditional Latin Mass. Once that... Eucharist is on your tongue, your tongue, and this was taught to me by a, a traditional Catholic who, who I'm, I'm grateful to. Once that Eucharist hits your tongue, your tongue becomes a throne that God sits upon. So watch out for the things that you say about each other. And that's what he, that's right. that's what he said to me. And, and, I, and, and that stuck with me. And, and, and that really helped me to honestly feel as though Jesus is on my tongue, is enthroned. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, on, on further reflection a little bit as well, I think um, one of the things that the Second Vatican Council really pushed that I think was very good, but the opposite happened, was um, this idea of empowering the laity to go forth and to um, sanctify the world. That was a big push in um, the Second Vatican Council. But what ended up happening is it was almost like the, the laity became clericalized 
And then the clerics ended up going out and working in, in the world. And so you would see these priests who would go and get secular jobs um, or who really would, would dedicate themselves to everything except for the altar. Mm. Um, and then it was the laity who then kind of flooded into the altar where you've got, you know, lectors and extraordinary ministers and, and everybody in the altar, even to the point where, you know, it was a common thing in a lot of places that, you know, people would kind of stand around the altar and hold hands during the uh, consecration. Um, and I think that flipping upside down of what the Second Vatican Council really intended was a major part of the lack of reverence. Because if the, the priest who necessarily, because of um, his sacramental seal, has to be the one that is kind of at the center of the Eucharistic sacrifice. He's the one that that consecrates the Eucharist. If he is not dedicated to it, then really nobody is dedicated mm. to it. And if nobody is dedicated to it, then really the reverence and the beauty and all of these things begin to decay over time. Mm. Um, and so I, I actually think that a lot of the, the reverence could be um, reordered by priests dedicating themselves to the liturgy and the laity dedicating themselves to sanctification of the world. Explain that. Now, we have a, a father who's involved with our organization, Father Larry Burrell, uh, who just became a pre priest on December 11th. Congratulations. He, yeah. He, oh, he talk, and talk about a great guy. I remember when I could just call him Larry, but, you know, not anymore. He's <laughs> Father Larry now. And, and he's, and he's going to be a great priest. I know that. I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is... What, what is his job versus what is my job? I mean, I have this goofy little podcast that, you know, that we do, you know, every, probably every week or so. I mean, is that okay for me? Absolutely. Is, yeah. Is that what Absolutely. I'm called to do? And, and is Father Larry called to, you know, sort of instruct me in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, if you can, if, if you think about the, the primary roles of the, the priest, um, or you could almost say that the, the church as a whole, its its job is to teach, govern, and sanctify, right? Th those three things. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the sanctifying for the priest happens primarily through the, the liturgy and the sacraments, right? And so that's kind of what we need to be dedicated to. And then the priests, by the very structure of the church, and the priests and the bishops really do a lot of the governing. However, the laity absolutely uh, can be a part of that too. Um, and then the teaching, um, once again, the, the priests and the bishops should teach kind of at a high level there, but at every level or at, with all three of those, really the laity have their own role to do that in the world, mm. right? So you could almost say that the, the priests and the bishops teach, govern, and sanctify in the, in the church, in the church building, you know, you could think, mm. um, and then the laity teach, govern, and sanctify in the world, you know, yeah, this this kind of a podcast, this is absolutely, you know, teaching uh, in the world. Um, you know, lay people in, in their businesses and in their workplaces should, in a certain sense, govern. They should order their, their businesses, their workplaces, whatever their occupation is, to direct creation back to God. Uh, and then so also with, with sanctification, that they should be sanctified in and through their work and also in and through their work, they should sanctify others. Mm. Father, let's get back to your book. Um, you talk about proving God, uh, proving that Jesus is truly present in the, in the Eucharist, and you use traditions and science and scripture. 
tell me some of the scripture that proves and and first of all tell me what is a proof yeah that's a really good question um and so you know when we when we look at the scriptures first off the scriptures are a difficult book to interpret that's why so many different christian denominations can all say we read the scripture and we are faithful to the scriptures and so many of them come up with different conclusions mm -hmm. right? and so strict the strict sense of proof really can't be found in the scriptures but there is ample evidence there's an accumulation of evidence that um the scriptures give that, that give us a good sense that no this is really jesus's body and blood um and before we even talk about those what are often referred to as proof texts or those core texts that every catholic goes to you know the the institution narratives in john chapter six it's it's important to kind of put ourselves into the mind of the person who doesn't believe specifically the christian who doesn't believe because if we're going to be talking about the scriptures um, really, we're only talking to Christians. You don't you don't go to a Muslim and say, "Well, look what the Bible says. This must be true," mm -hmm. because they they haven't really accepted the Bible as a source of truth. So we're dealing with other Christians uh, who perhaps don't believe in the scripture or in um, in Jesus's real presence in the Eucharist. And I think one of the things that holds them back, but that is very rarely articulated, is that they think to themselves, "This is a really big claim." right? That, that that thing that looks like bread is actually God, that's, that's big. Yeah. But why yeah. is it that you can only pull passages from John chapter 6 and then from this one scene in Jesus's life to prove it? You know, all of the other big things that God would become man, that he would die on the cross, that he would rise from the dead, that he would create a, a, a nation of of people to call his own, those were all foreshadowed through the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Why wasn't this? And so what we really have to do is, is start by telling the full story and, and showing how it was uh, foreshadowed also in the Old Testament. Uh, and so those, those major points are, um, first off, the, uh, the tree of good and evil in, in the garden. And so from the very beginning, I'm sorry, not the tree of good and evil, the, the tree of life, and the fruit of the tree of life um, in the garden, that, that from the very beginning, God made it clear that he intends to give us a food that will grant us eternal life. Right? And so in the garden, there, there are two trees that get special notice. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's the one that Adam and Eve ate from, the fall, original sin, all of that. Most people are very familiar with that mm -hmm. tree. However, there's this other tree that is the, the tree of life. Um, and Adam and Eve were fully allowed to eat of that tree. And we don't get a ton of information about it when it's first introduced. But after the, the fall, there's this line that says that we cannot let them into the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. And so it's clear that this, this tree of life, the, the, the fruit of the tree of life, gave eternal life and so you can see right there foreshadowing of the eucharist the you know the the bread of life mm -hmm. um, that's so clearly expounded upon in john chapter six then the next one is uh melchizedek who's a very interesting and kind of um mysterious character in the old testament he appears uh with abraham and then again in the book of psalms he, he pops up um and he's really commented on a lot in the, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. 
And so Melchizedek was, he was first off the king of, of Salem, the king of peace. Um, and he was, first off, he was a king and a priest, right? So you can see right there, a pretty clear parallel to Jesus Christ, who is mm -hmm. both, you know, king and priest. Um, and Abraham had him offer sacrifice on his behalf. And then Abraham also paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so, um, you know, in the ancient mindset, the person to whom you paid tithes, tithes was the higher priest, right? Lower priests would pay tithes to the higher priests. And the higher priest would always offer sacrifice on behalf of the lower priests. And so Abraham, from whose um, loins came, you know, the Aaronic priesthood, the, the Levite priesthood, really, you know, all of the priests of the Old Testament came from Abraham. And so, assumably, Abraham was the highest of the priests of the people of Israel, and Melchizedek was an even higher priest. So we've got this, this kind of foreshadowing of this high priesthood of Melchizedek, who also offers bread and wine, which was an odd mix of things to offer as a priest in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, you know, bread was not unheard of, but to mix to, to offer just bread and wine. That's, that's an odd mix, and it's more than just a coincidence that also Jesus Christ used bread and wine in the offering of his body and blood um, in, at the Last Supper. Um, then moving on, you've got uh, really the, the major images that we think of of the Eucharist in the Old Testament with the, the manna in the desert, obviously, is a really big one where <clears throat> you've got the bread from heaven that John chapter 6 speaks about pretty clearly that Jesus is this new bread from heaven. And if you eat of him, you will not die, just like uh, as, the, as your fathers did in the desert. And so we've got that foreshadowing happening with the manna in the desert. And then you have the bread of presence, which is really interesting. First off, the, the bread of presence was just this bread that was put outside of the, the Jerusalem temple and the, the tent of meeting, where the bread would just sit there. <laughs> it was kind of an, an odd sacrifice that was made. But it was, it was a bread that was to be a, a perpetual sacrifice, and it was to be a, a covenant between God and his people. And so you can see that pretty clearly how, you know, Jesus Christ and specifically the offering of the Mass uh, is a perpetual sacrifice. It's that, that one only sacrifice made present again and again on the altars. And it's that new covenant, the sacrifice of the new covenant that's made by Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the, I think the biggest one uh, is the Passover. Obviously, the Last Supper was celebrated within the context of the Passover um, in Jesus's life. And there are clear parallels with, you know, John, uh, John the Baptist at the very beginning of the gospel, pointing out to Jesus Christ and saying, behold, the Lamb of God. You know, why in the world is this crazy guy who's out here baptizing in the River Jordan shouting about lambs of God? Mm -hmm. you know, with this <laughs> dusty carpenter who happened to walk up, you know, it's this, this must be a very meaningful thing to, to shout it out that strongly. Um, and in a context in which it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, when you, when you really understand that Jesus Christ is the new Passover, he is the new lamb of God, then the Eucharist begins to open up a lot because at the last supper, there is no lamb that's mentioned. Um, that the purpose of the Passover meal was to eat the lamb, but th there's no lamb there. Therefore, well, what was it that they ate except for the flesh and um, drank the blood of Christ in the Eucharist? 
Uh, and then there are also some some kind of neat things with with the Passover. Uh, if you read Saint Justin Martyr, who's a, a great father of the Church, in his dialogue with Trifo, he makes this kind of offhand comment that I have to admit, whenever I first read it, I thought, oh, that must be one of those, you know, kind of statements that every once in a while ancient authors make that are totally unfounded. And he he just says, as as everyone knows, in Jerusalem, the lambs are are immolated on a wooden cross, which I thought, hmm. how in the world do the lambs get immolated on a wooden cross? Like there's never in the history of humanity has, has anybody ever cooked lambs on a, on a wooden cross. Like that's that's got to be one of those things that's just totally made up. But if you go in and you you read the it's called the Peshakim is a certain section of the ancient rabbinic books that. Uh, the Jews kept. And it, it talks about actually part of the preparation for the Passover lambs at the time of Christ was that they would run a, it was a bamboo skewer, essentially through their mouth all the way out the back, and then also from shoulder to shoulder. And so literally the lambs that were being sacrificed at the exact same time that Christ was offering the Last Supper, at the exact same time that he was being crucified and, and rising from the dead, throughout that whole feast, they were on a wooden cross as well, which when you when you begin to see that, you're thinking, wow, this is getting really, you know, the, the parallel is getting strong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that what really pins it down to the Eucharist is when you look at the text from Exodus where uh you know, the, the command is being made to sacrifice in, in exactly what they're supposed to do with this lamb. It's, it's clear in the instructions that what is important is not the killing of the lamb. The killing of the lamb is a necessary part of this. But if you want to be saved, you must eat the lamb. In fact, uh, in all of these instructions, you know, it goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. The Israelites are commanded to sacrifice the lamb or to kill the lamb twice, but they're commanded to eat it seven times. Hmm. And so you kind of think, well, if in the Old Testament, this Lamb of God was meant to be sacrificed, but really the salvation was not given to the people of God unless they ate of the Lamb, then why is it that in the New Testament, when the new Lamb of God is sacrificed, no eating needs to happen whatsoever? Right, which is kind of the assumption that a lot of um, people who don't believe in the Eucharist take. They say, "Well, no, we really we're, we're saved by Jesus's cross, and that's it." Hmm. But that's not how it worked in the Old Testament, and we're dealing with the same God. And so, if He had us eat of the Lamb, and that was actually the most important part of receiving the salvation of God, hmm. then also we need to eat of the Lamb in the Eucharist. Uh, in order to really receive his salvation. That is absolutely amazing. Isn't well, it? It blew my mind whenever I encountered all this. I thought, wow. Yeah, I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I had never realized it was so clear until until I did the research for the book. Well, where does Catholic tra uh, tradition, where does Catholic tradition and Jewish tradition, do they, are they parallel at some point? So uh, are you talking about just like in, in general or in, in particular in regard to the Eucharist? Well, you know, like... I guess you pretty much have cleared that up as far as the Eucharist goes. But I mean, Jewish tradition and, and Catholic tradition, we're all on one line 
at, at one point, but but obviously, you know, with Jesus, Jewish tradition has continued on its path, and ours is our trajectory is is towards his second coming. Right. Yeah. So I mean, prior to the coming of Christ, really, there was the you know the people of God who were, you know, the the, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, mm-hmm. um, and then Christ came and offered that salvation uh, first to the Jewish people. And then uh, kind of from then, that salvation was also offered to the entire world. You know, I think we we kind of forget sometimes that we're all Gentiles, you know, well, may, maybe not. I don't I don't know your, your hereditary. <laughs> no, I'm, uh... I'm Irish, so. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, right. My last name is Elliot. That was a very, very English name, so. I'm about as pagan as it gets you know, <laughs> in my bloodline. Um, and yeah, so really we received salvation through the Jews that they were kind of the, the, the foothold of God to retake uh, creation and retake humanity. I, I almost think about the, the Jews um, kind of like Normandy, you know, in, in World War II, there was a, this great battle of the allies for Normandy uh, so that they could, they could take that location. And then once they were able to hold that, they could kind of stage the next attack to, to take back Europe. Yep. Um, and the, Isra- the, the Israelite people were very much um, kind of God's Normandy. They were the ones that, that he took first. Um, and from there, he could prepare the attack to, to take back um, his kingdom from, from the powers of darkness. Yeah, and so you know, there, God absolutely didn't abandon the the Jewish people in any way, but you know, Christianity and Catholicism really holds that fullness of truth and the the salvation wrought by Jesus Christ that now points, like you said, to that second coming. I forget who it was that said it, but it it was a priest that, that said that ca- the Catholic Church is Judaism perfected. Yes, absolutely. Um, yep, it's. Um, Brought to its fulfillment, brought to its its, yeah, its proper goal. I, I just like to say that you know, there's an old saying that says all roads lead to Rome. Well, Rome is it's just a uh, a layover. Our our final destination is heaven. Father, yeah. I know that you're you're probably the scripture and tradition specialist in this book, but you you actually go, even go into a a science. And I I'm sorry, I'm gonna probably butcher Doctor Stacy. Can you help Trisenkos. me? Trisenkos. Yes. Now, she's actually um, a professor at college, and I have the book right here, Holy Apostles College. Is that here in Connecticut? Yes, yeah. Okay, because we in had... Cromwell. we Yep, we had uh, Father Skip Thompson on, who was a priest there, who's now gone out to California, but that, I just, you know, I'd really like to give a shout out to that school. They, they're, uh, they're phenomenal there. Nice campus. Um, but she goes into the scientific aspect of the Eucharist. Can you just shed a little light on that? Because yes, that's yeah, not like said, that's I'm, not I'm an by area. No the expert on this one. You gotta you gotta get Dr. Trusenkos <laughs> on the on the show um, to get all, all the details there. But what we realized is, you know, that kind of the book as a whole is built. All right, well, here are the scriptural pieces. But really, this is only going to convince someone who has accepted uh, the Bible and its authority to, to teach and to speak the truth. Um, and once you go through all of those passages, even though, I mean, when you really open it all up, and if you read the whole Bible, 
in light of, you know, the other passages, when you read it all together, it's, it's pretty hard not to believe mm-hmm. that Jesus really meant this is my body and this is my blood in a, in a pretty concrete, real way. However, obviously, you can look around and there are a lot of people who don't believe in the Eucharist. And so, you know, there are some people who, who still don't believe that. They, they think that somehow the Catholic Church has interpreted the scriptures wrong. And so what we did then is we looked at the, the early church and we said, well, let's look at what those early saints and bishops and leaders in, in, in the Christian community believed about the Eucharist. And you know, surely they couldn't have gotten it that wrong. And we found a few of them who are actually students of John, the evangelist, you know, the guys that studied under under the the beloved disciple. They studied under the guy who, who laid his head on Jesus's chest at the, the Last Supper. You know, mm-hmm. if those guys believe in the Eucharist, I think probably that's what Jesus meant. Um, and that's what we found, that, that even those guys believed in, in the real presence of Christ. Mm-hmm. But... There are some people who still say, nope, I, I I can't believe it. I just, you know, I, I'm too pragmatic. I, you know, it looks like bread. It tastes like wine. Therefore, it must be bread and wine. And so we say, fine, you'll, you'll only trust your senses. Well, then let's go to science. Um, let's see what the Eucharistic miracles have to say. And Dr. Trasankos is, I mean, she is a, a rigorous chemist. Um, she... Uh, she's obviously a great woman of faith, but when it comes to chemistry, she wants to only do it in the chemist way. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, what she did is she she analyzed specifically three Eucharistic miracles. One of them was the one in Balsena that is very connected to Orvieto as well. So um, some people have gone to Orvieto, which is really the bigger pilgrimage spot. But the, the Eucharistic miracle happened, happened in Bolsena, which is a town nearby. And then she looked at the Argentina ones, the Buenos Aires miracles, which happened actually in the 90s. So it was uh, 1990s. And so it's very recent. And then she looked at the uh, Lanciano miracle, which happened in the 8th century. And there have been, there, there were a whole series of studies done on that Lanciano miracle in the 1970s. And so she, she looked at the data um, available for each of these three miracles and really dives into it. And I have to admit, I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a science nerd, and so I, I like reading these types of things. Mm-hmm. But she was really, I mean, the, the, <laughs> as she's talking about all of the DNA and the, how these enzymes and strands and proteins and all of this happened, it it, it stretches me definitely. <laughs> there are a few times I, I have to read three or four times. What is she saying? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, she goes into great detail and really, really flexes her her chemist mind analyzing these. And in, in each of them, she she really points out kind of the almost the the logical flaw that people have when they say, "I will only trust science." Hmm. Because what she points out is that really with every single one of these, you still have to trust human beings, mm-hmm. right? Somebody said, this is the miracle. Somebody said, I saw this happen. Somebody said, this is what the, the scientific results were. All of these things can be falsified. Hmm. And yet, when it comes to science, everybody says, well, it was science, and so it must be true. But actually, science itself relies on human trust, you know, trusting in other human beings. 
Um, and so she points out the really cool stuff. And if you read through the book, I mean, it's amazing the things that these scienti scientists find in regard to these Eucharistic miracles. And the one thing that um, <laughs> I, I didn't expect her to do when we first started writing on this book. So I, I approached her about writing the book. I had had this experience or several experiences working with people who were either interested in growing in their faith in the Eucharist or were really struggling with their faith in the Eucharist and just needed to talk to someone to kind of get all of this stuff pinned down and to fortify their faith. And I went looking for a book that had all three of these things, you know, the scripture, the fathers of the church and the sign and the Eucharistic miracles. I couldn't find one. And so I said, well, I'm tired of just repeating this to everybody. So I'm going to write it all down. Might as well make it a book. Um, mm. And then I can just hand it to people. Um, and, I, and I talked to Dr. Trisenkos about writing this Eucharistic miracle section. And I thought, you know, she was going to get into it and, you know, look at all of the data and say, yes, it's all absolutely proven and all of the things that are said about these Eucharistic miracles are absolutely true. And actually, she went in and found in some of the data that there were certain things that have been repeated again and again and again on the internet that are not true. Hmm. Which when I first heard that, it was it <laughs> it was hard for me, right? We were passing our transcripts back and forth or our manuscripts back and forth. Yeah. And I kind of when I first saw it, I thought, oh no. Am I going to have to pull the plug on this? You know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't expect to hear this, but uh, you know, I kind of I took it to prayer and thought through it and realized, you know, it's actually a good thing that a a, a faithful Catholic scientist found that certain of the things. No, I want to be very clear. It's not all of the things. Like it's it's quite clear there are miracles that happened, um, but but some of these things that have been repeated again and again are actually not true and this book, when it's published, will help to clean up some of those falsehoods. Because as we all know, there are plenty of people who would love to prove all of the Eucharistic miracles as false. And, and, and if they can go out there and find that some of the information is not true, that right. is continually repeated about these, then they'll say, well, look, now it's all, it's all not true. Right. And so, you know, we don't, we shouldn't believe in this. But if it's us that stand up and say, hey, wait a second, some of this information isn't verifiable, it's not true, uh, and this needs to be cleaned up, we can clean up across really the Catholic Church what we're saying about these miracles and really have an even more convincing um, argument and statement about these Eucharistic miracles. Um, and like I said, I mean, the, the information, there's still plenty of it that is true that, you know, will really push someone towards faith. Just kind of like one of those, when you tell somebody one thing at the beginning of the line, by the time you get to the end of the line, it's it's completely changed, right? Exactly, yeah, the telephone game. Yeah, so, and we've had 2,000 years of, of, uh, of history to be able to uh, to change. Hey, I want to bring in Dave Imhoff, because I know that Dave is, uh, uh, is really interested in the subject. Dave, you got anything you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, yeah, as we were just talking about that, the, you know, the science uh, just now, I, what, I'm, what I was wondering about, I, and I've heard this um, before, maybe one of these, maybe it's one of these false <laughs> uh, internet things that you were referring to, but um, DNA, uh, any of the, I believe some of that analysis includes DNA analysis that tells that this is, I believe, a heart tissue know with like an ab blood type and stuff like this and with the different and if they did with, with the different uh miracles 
could we sh could it be shown that it's the same DNA? That's what I would, would wonder. Yeah, Dr. Trosenkos will be able to answer that a whole lot better than than I will. But from from what I understand, yes, the the Lanciano report, I think it was, um, looked at the the tissue um, under a microscope and said that yeah, this is uh, at least it's it's at least the kind of muscle that is found in the heart, not necessarily that it is heart heart tissue. And then it was a B blood type. In the Argentina tests, they actually weren't able to pull what kind of blood test or what kind of blood it was, if I remember correctly. There were there were a lot of non-conclusive results that came back from the from the Argentina tests, and I, I think the, the reason is it had been soaking in water for quite a while, and so you know a lot of things were just not quite as good as they needed to be. Um, or the you know, the biological material was just not in as good of shape as it really needed to be for a conclusive result. Um, and then what is very important about the um, Buenos Aires miracles is that it was sent out to six different scientists and analyzed just under a, under a microscope. And they all said that there were white blood cells there. So just because you know they weren't able to figure out what kind of blood type it was, it it definitely is blood, you know that they were that they were dealing with, and for white blood cells to still be together at this point, it's um it, that's pretty pretty miraculous. White blood cells decompose fairly quickly after they leave the bloodstream, or, you know after after a person dies, and so um, and that was still a lot of really that was the one that was that was done in the nineties, correct? One is Irish. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So the um, the miracles happened in 92, 94, and 96. And then the actual report came out in 2000. Hmm. Father, going back to the Eucharist itself, we've always believed as Catholics that it is the true presence of Jesus Christ. Tell me how we in a modern day church, how do we return to that true reverence? That when, whether we receive Jesus on our tongue or we receive it in our hand, how should we treat it and how should we receive it? Yeah, you know, I think what you said at the beginning of the podcast is really, really dead on. Reverence is first a matter of the heart. Um, so to really work on our love of our Lord and of the Eucharist. And I think uh, Eucharistic adoration before our Lord exposed in the Blessed Sacrament is one of the best ways to really grow in that. And then from there flows the reverence. And if, if I'm honest with you, I think that that needs to start with the priests. If anybody needs to be showing reverence to the Eucharist, it needs to be the, the priests. And so really encouraging priests, whenever they do show real signs of, of reverence, you know, going up to a priest and saying, Father, I just love how, you know, whenever you receive, you, you just take that moment. All of us are sitting there waiting, but I love that, that you spend that extra few seconds of prayer right after having received our Lord, because it shows us that what you're doing is worth it for all of us to wait for, you know, and it, and it helps us to receive our Lord with reverence or, you know, anything, any, any little detail like that um, to really encourage the priests in your parish uh, to, to show that reverence and to, to affirm them whenever they do. And then with, with your own reception of communion and, and your way that you conduct yourself in the church, that uh, not only is an expression of that love that you have for the Eucharist, but it also builds that within you 
And so making sure that when you're genuflecting, you genuflect intentionally. When you kneel, you're, you're thinking about why are you kneeling or who are you kneeling before? And, you know, as you're receiving, really being aware of, of what it is that's happening. And like you said, that um, your, your tongue and your heart are becoming thrones for the God of the universe. I, uh, I was very, very fortunate to serve mass at a, uh, the Felician Sisters in Enfield, Connecticut and I, for a number of years, and it was all done before COVID. And I became very, very friendly with the father there. His name was uh, Father Noel Daniel Witz. He's a Franciscan friar. And I just remember, because he had a great speaking voice, and I just remember when he raised the host, he would, he would hold it and say, this is Jesus. And you just think about those words, this is Jesus. And that's some of what your whole book is about. The Eucharist, this is Jesus. And we as Catholics, we need to get back to thinking about that and just holding him dear in our hearts and in our minds at all times. Father, you know, we're starting to wrap this up, but you are truly, I don't know when you found time to write this book because it says here, Father George Elliott is a priest of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. He's a pastor of Sacred Heart, our Lady of Guadalupe, Immaculate Conception, and Our Lady of Lords uh, Catholic Churches, and is also the chaplain of uh, St. Mary's Catholic uh, uh, Campus Ministry. He is also the co-founder and president of uh, Catholic Cast Media. Whew. That's that's uh, quite a resume you got going on there, Father. Yeah, got really good people that are, that work with me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me a little bit about yeah. Cast Media. Yeah, so Cast Media was a, it is a media company that kind of sprang out of a, actually a podcast that we started when we were seminarians. And kind of one thing led to another and a, and a whole media company grew out of it. And so right now, um, really the only for-profit piece of it is Cast Video Studio. And so that is a video studio that does development and institutional videos for Catholic organizations. Um, so, you know, you can think of the diocesan capital campaign videos and um, bishops appeal videos, or, you know, if you go to a gala or something of that sort for a school or what, you know, some charitable organization, um, those types of videos that you see there, uh, that's what we do. And we, we don't do them just for the sake of fundraising, but really for the sake of showcasing how God is working in and through these different organizations. And and really helping people to, to become engaged with that mission um, and love that mission. And if they have the resources and if they have the, the desire to therefore support them financially. And so that's what uh, the video studio does. And then any profits from the video studio get poured into, uh, we have catholic-link.org um, is a website that produces articles, videos, and quotes for the new evangelization. We've got Catholic Bites podcast is, is still around. That's the original podcast that we started. And then uh, we've got a, a YouTube channel that we just started up, and that's that's where we ended up um, encountering each other for the first time. Um, and that's CatholicLink.org uh, uh, YouTube channel. And then we're we're starting up right now. It'll be launching this calendar year. It'll take some time. Um, a, an initiative called Bible Link, which will essentially be a some live digital Bible studies for people to get plugged into and have a real community that will support them to continue to grow in their faith, to learn more and be from the comfort of their home. We kind of realized everybody knows how to use Zoom now. I mean, we're actually on Zoom right now. Um, <laughs> and so uh, taking advantage of that, you know, if, if the whole world has had to learn how to do video conferences, well, let's use those for the gospel as well.
Yeah. It's funny, Father, because this podcast originally was supposed to be me just going to meet people and meeting them along the way. And well, COVID came along and it expanded my my reach because of Zoom. So uh, we've had some great guests. You are one of them. Uh, I hope you will come back and see us again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Father, would you mind giving us a blessing? Giving us a blessing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. With your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you, Father. Hey, for my guest, Father George Elliott, author of Behold, It Is I, uh, my producer, David Imhoff, I'm Down the Hall Dave, praying that your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. We'll see you next time.